Good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. This interview is being conducted for the FIU CFJ project. The interviewer is Imani Warren. The interview is being taken place at LBW HomeQuest Foundation and is in Miami, Florida, 6-11-22. So that's June 11th, 2022. So thank you all so much for joining us today. So we're going to get right to it. Um, you all can please uh, introduce yourself. Please tell me your name and where you're from. Oh, well, my name is uh, George A. Simpson, MD. I'm a general surgeon. I practice in Miami, uh, Dade County for the last, uh, since 1958. And uh, I have tried to be a good citizen and do whatever I can to advance the culture, the well-being, the general health of the community in which I live. Thank you, sir. Uh, my name is Gregory Simpson. Um, I've been a real estate developer and a real estate exchanger, and um, I've spent about 30 years of my life um, creating uh, affordable housing for uh, individuals and uh, also for elderly people. Thank you. I'm Frederica Simmons Brown. I was born and read in Coconut Grove, Florida. I am a retired school teacher, having taught school for 48 years, from Homestead to what we now call Liberty City. And I have lived all my life in Coconut Grove, went on various vacations to other cities, but I came back to my old hometown. Yes, ma'am, thank you. Good morning, my name is Clarice Cooper. I'm a lifelong resident of Coconut Grove. I love Coconut Grove to the bottom of my heart. <laughs> I uh, am a retiree from the advertising division in a major newspaper here locally, and I have been enjoying retirement. The pandemic has set my goals back a little, but I'm very hopeful that everything will be returned to normal and I could proceed with everything else that I wanted to accomplish, but I am still active civically. Thank you. Thank you all so much for that. So the first question, and you all can just go around and respond the way you did prior. Uh, what are some of the major disasters or crisis events that your community has experienced? Uh, economic blight. For I was just speaking um, where the commercial portion of, uh, of Grand Avenue was in black hands, and that was like a three or four block space. It's now a one block space. Um, for from the 60s, from the end of the 60s on, um, getting financing and uh, getting uh, monies to, to keep up with the other developments in the, in, uh, in the city of Miami and uh, Dade County was almost always lacking. And uh, so that was a struggle for uh, individuals who uh, wanted to actually be in Coconut Grove and create businesses mm -hmm. because they didn't have the same opportunities as um, across the street. And I would use the example of 
the difference between what uh, the growth, as, as folks related to used to call it, and we're now we're looking to maybe call it uh, Little Bahamas. But Little Bahamas compared to uh, the village of Merrick that I can see from this interview, where there are skyscrapers and million and two, two and three million dollar condos and all the economic development in the world. Right. Uh, so uh, I, I can literally walk across the street to go to a, a Trader Joe's, but Coconut Grove is literally what's called a, uh, a healthy food desert. <laughs> there are only two or three, no, there are only two now small grocery stores that you can come into to buy, and uh, uh, that's always been the case. Or not always been the case. It was not the case uh, earlier when it was a viable economic community. It still didn't have the same monies as because past the six before the sixties and before I was born, um, it was still segregated society legally. Uh, but uh, it was still a very functioning and economic society. We uh, created business for with within the community for the community. Yes, sir. That has been a bigger blight than Hurricane Andrew or the recession in uh, 2008 or even the AIDS epidemic. Wow. Okay, I'd like uh, to add that... Uh, Oh. <laughs> Jump in, so you young did. lady, wherever you see fit. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I think the question was, what, can you repeat it? Yes, ma'am. Uh, what do you think would help to... Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. The, uh, the disaster. I asked the wrong question. Oh, wait. <laughs> what kind of um, disasters has your community faced? Okay. Thank you. I have seen Coatna Grove in the worst stages of its existence, and I live here all my life, and that is affordable housing for our younger generation. They are going other places to live because they cannot afford a, not even a one-bedroom apartment here in Cote Grove. So I, being a community resident for so many years, hate to see this change coming. I hate to see that our young people have to go other places in the community or even out of the community in other states and cities to live because they cannot afford the prices for houses they're causing in this area. I never realized, I never dreamed that my little house that I live in on Franklin Avenue will be a million dollars today. However, I told my children I will not sell and I hope they don't sell. So affordable housing is one of the big crisis and issues in the Grove today. Yes, ma'am. Uh, this might sound controversial, but I think uh, integration also uh, had a big uh, negative effect on our community because uh, a lot of people were free to go to use other public facilities locally and otherwise, and also housing was available in other parts of the county. So we lost a large part of our 
the population here, and that affected the schools as well as the churches, most of our churches in this community, and we have about four that are over 100 years old. A lot of their members, most of their members of uh, congregations consist of people that do not live in this community. Uh, we have sort of lost our village effect that we had. Everything was more close-knit. Anything that happened in any of the schools or the churches or any community, uh, civic or organizational events was attended by most of the people in the community, regardless of whether or not they were affiliated firsthand or not. Yes, ma'am. Um, and I think we have one more response, or would you like to respond to that, Doctor? Uh, you know, when I was a resident, we used to uh, be the physician for the clinics for the neighboring, uh, for the people in the neighborhood. And one day, a uh, lady came to the clinic with her child who had a cold, developing pneumonia, and uh, we treated the child, found out she had pneumonia, and uh, prescribed uh, at that time penicillin for her to take, gave her prescription and let her go. And the child came back about a week and a half, two weeks later, just as sick as she was when she came the first time. And uh, it brought us to the realization, why was she having this pneumonia? Well, in her house, there was a hole in the roof. And you can give all the penicillin in the world to that child, but she's not going to get better until you fix the hole in the roof to stop the rain from coming in and causing her to have pneumonia. So if you're, as we were, concerned with good health in the community, you realize that there are more factors than just physical or uh, chemical or biological disease, that there are factors impinging on the health of the community and of the family, which are political and financial and social, psychological, political. All of these factors impinge on the health of the community. And in order to have good health of the community, you must address each and every one of these factors which impinge on the health of the community. And this apparently was uh, what my experience as a physician since 1958, and uh, I came from New York, and this was my first real experience living in the South. Things came to you that had to be done and uh, although you were not specifically uh, working in that area, you had to help and help lead in many instances. I myself found this to be true when I added up all of the affordable housing projects that I had been involved in either as an owner or a builder, a developer or a board member and uh, it came to 295. I was amazed. But uh, these are the numbers of houses which I personally had been involved in. But this was not all. You had to be involved in the political aspect. You had to uh, back uh, political candidates. You had, to, uh, you had to petition and fight for uh, sewage, uh, conditions. You had to fight for environmental changes. 
you had to fight for the very existence uh, taxes, for instance, lower taxes. And too many of the people in Coconut Grove, which was a, a nice little village. Yes, sir. I think in terms of uh, Hillary Clinton saying it takes a village to raise a child. And uh, I said, very nice, very nice. Except that this was a, a phrase taken from an African uh, <laughs> adage. And the whole thing was this. It takes a whole village. Yes, sir. To raise properly yes. a child. A child is going to get raised whether things are good or things are bad. But in order to raise that child properly, you have to uh, involve the resources and help of the whole community, meaning the rich and the poor and the politically affluent. So these are the things which, in my life as a physician, you come on to but you don't necessarily aim at doing that as your profession, but you have to consider working in these areas in order to improve the general health of the community. Thank you, that was a profound statement. Thank you so much. <laughs> Are you ready? Okay. All right, this is Arthi Mehta Kroll. I'm a graduate student in the Department of Global Sociocultural Studies. So my question is, considering the challenges the community is facing now, how is the community responding to it? How we responded to what you the challenges that you just described. Oh well, we have uh, stayed in touch. A lot of us through local organizations and churches with uh, elected officials at the city, state, and the federal level, as well as uh, county. And uh, we have uh, situations where we address our needs to them immediate and long term, and we invite them to meetings and to have discussions with them, community meetings. We've done that quite a bit. And we seem to have gotten a pretty good response. Usually it takes a, a consideration of financial of considerations as far as getting monies appropriated for whatever we're asking for, whether it's improvement to the parks, uh, affordable housing, which is very high on our list. That's the top priority in this community, as well as uh, securing jobs for a lot of uh, jobless people. And we also have a mental health crisis that I think we need more of an address to at all levels. And that also affects people's ability to work or to be productive. Well, I think we depend a lot on our elected officials to help this community a lot, as Kyrie has said. We do see the need for improvement, and we join the community organizations to try to present our feelings on particular situations that develop. So we go to the community meetings, we go to the uh, uh, meetings that they have at Denneke, and we express our feelings. We want them to know how we feel as local residents, how we can keep and improve our neighborhood. We depend on them to help us do this. Um, I was thinking about the, the last uh, financial loss. And uh, I think that was a lot more devastating than 
what's going on now, the, the last recession in, in 2008, because uh, at the very end of that, so from 2006 to 2008, you have the predatory loans. Mm -hmm. and, the, and more black and more folks lost their properties in those predatory loans, taking equity out of their houses, and then the rates changing right as the depression comes about. That's one. And number, so I thought, I thought that was actually a greater loss of property and wealth, black wealth in this community. Currently now, we're a, a buyer's market. So if you still were able to hold on to your home, uh, you have that opportunity to, uh, to, to, uh, to sell or to, or to take equity out of it. Uh, but too often as a group, we black, this community and black communities in general don't operate in unison and especially economically in unison. Uh, I was speaking just a little while ago about uh, when 12 row families collected to, to try to turn the blight of uh, the commercial part of Grand Avenue. And well, we got control of the property and that was powerful but it was still 30 or 40 years before any development would happen there. Yeah. Uh, and that was out of our control. And, and by the way, that ends up becoming a generational fight. And unfortunately, in terms of with money and wealth, we don't operate, too often black people do not operate in generational ways. And so, uh, and so I've always tried to educate folks as you were expressing about uh, your million dollar property and what you hope for your children to have. Well, if they have a trust, or if you have a living will, or if you can structure your properties in a corporation and then divide, divide it among your family members at that time, and these giving them the opportunity. These are my wishes, but you have the control, these are the percentages, and it's a legal entity. Um, then you actually hold on to property and you actually build up your community. But that doesn't happen enough, but it should. Um, you kind of, kind of touched bases on the next aspect of the question, which was, what do you think would help to protect your community from these threats? And you really kind of segue into that. So if you all don't mind elaborating more on what would kind of protect the community? Well, one challenge that I think we have now is uh, getting our young people involved because they seem to be less interested or less motivated. And I think that's not just for the families to be concerned about, but other organizations in the churches that, and also the schools to let these people, for young people know that that uh, everything is being passed on and left to them, and they should be in a position to, you know, uphold the hold the flame burning and uh, be enlightened as far as economically, financially, and politically how they can keep things going. And that seems to be a re really big challenge that I find even among some of my uh, close associates and family members, because these kids now have a lot of distractions and. 
Yes. yes and what's going to happen in the future really doesn't concern a lot of them. If they figure that'll just be taken care of it as it goes along. So it's a big responsibility. That's a bigger challenge than before because I compare a lot of these kids to when I was young and the concerns that we had, and they don't seem to have the same kind of interests or motivation. And I agree with her because I'm now talking to my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, the value of our property, and it keeps going up and up and up. And I say, one day, you'll appreciate what you have. But like Clarice said, the younger people don't seem to understand anything about value and what would be beneficial to them in later life. So I, on that question, I really don't know what we can do to encourage them to hold on to what they have because it is of value. You know, uh, one of the things that is necessary in community building is to involve all of the people, but more importantly, to involve people who previously did not feel that they had any effect or any real weight in determining what was going to happen in the community. I think in terms of uh, one of my heroes, of course, many others, it's Martin Luther King who often said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Now again, as with Hillary, that was part of it. But the whole thing was this. This was the phrase which was uh, put forth by a pastor in the 17th century, a Protestant pastor. And what he said was the arc of the moral universe is long, but I believe it bends towards justice. There is no such thing as saying that it would bend towards justice on its own. It has to be helped to be bent that way. And that involves the participation of all of the people who previously might not have believed that they had any real weight. So to involve people who previously did not take part in building their community and holding on to what they have is a great function of people who would improve the community. So this is one of the features which community groups such as those which uh, many of us represent has to do. People will fight harder to hold on to what they have than other people will fight to get what they need. And we have to fight as hard as those who have so that we can also be one of those who have. So my question is, considering all the changes that have happened in the community um, intergenerationally um, over time with the financial crisis, what do you see as some of the continuing strengths of the community now? What do you see as um, those points of solidarity that are still there that can be built upon? <laughs> Not all at once. Well, <laughs> well, I look at a group of us like ourselves who are continually involved in civic 
And our churches and fraternal organizations that are preaching the same thing about community building and community cohesion. And that's what I think is very important as far as us improving what we have and what might, what could be lost because we have that concern within us that we refuse to let go. And as I say, to still impart that on our uh, young people and, and neighbors and other family members and friends, that that's very important. As I look around, I see a big change in the development of our community. It really isn't what we might call a community. It is just a place to live now. Because a community consists of a group of people living and coming together as one. I don't see that anymore. As I was telling the young lady during an earlier interview, I don't even know my neighbors. And when I was growing up, we knew everybody in the front, behind, on the side, down the street, all around us. They were all neighbors concerned about each other. And as Dr. Simpson said, it takes a village to rear a child. This community, this community it's not a village anymore. We used to call it the village because everybody was concerned about children growing up. Their concern was about us. But how can you be concerned about people who you don't even know as your neighbors? Yes, ma'am. So the neighborhood atmosphere has gone away. We don't have no community. We're just living together in a place. That's what I would call it. Two things. First, I'll I'll speak about. Uh, I've been a youth sponsor for a lot of years, and um, I, I think of these two examples that I pass on whenever I speak to kids. One, um, when the kids in North Miami walked out, um, when Trayvon Martin walked out of their classroom, uh, you know, at the risk of being expelled or, or, or a lot, but they 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 had such a visceral feeling that the entire school walked out. Black radio got that in locally. And then it got to black radio statewide. And then about, in my recollection, maybe about five or six weeks later, uh, Rachel Maddows gets it. And also um, um, the Congresswoman helped with that as well. But the actual initiating spark was those children. If Trayvon Martin had been a child from um, from Stewart, Florida, where, where it happened, from, from, from that community, and and his fellow students didn't, it even admit they'd acted up, but the children in Miami said, this is wrong. Right. And an even better example, and, and even though the outcome wasn't what we wanted, at least it sparked Black Lives Matter. I mean, his death, and its motivation, and that was done by high school kids in North, in uh, in Miami Gardens, in that area, and um, at Stoneman Douglas, high school kids who now are in their twenties or, or, or young twenties, changed the laws for guns in Florida. Yes, sir. And that was high school kids. These are the people I believe in. Mm. But a lot of times, the economics. If they, uh, and, and you were saying about um, distractions, children, what they, it's not distractions, it's, it's a, they have a minute 
attention span <laughs> because that's the way the culture is now. But if you can focus all of their uh, internet savvy and their, and their social media to moral social media, um, it can accomplish anything. I mean, the, but those are two examples of children, in Flo of, of young people, teenagers, high school students in Florida that have changed their world. Black Lives Matters is because of those kids walked out of that high school. They were so upset. And, and, and our gun laws got changed and got signed by a Republican governor because high school kids said no more and they got their parents to say no more. So if we, if we could get um, uh, children to be as concerned about uh, what's going on with the Cardassians or, or, as, or, or, or other for the moment social effects, um, that's change. That would be change and it'd be quick because they would keep a generation, at least the ones who are committed to it. Would anyone else like to respond to that question before we move to the next one? Can you repeat the question? Well, my question was that considering all of the challenges the community is facing now, I still see there's so much strength. And so I wanted you all to speak to the strength that you see in the community. She, she, uh, let me repeat. You're saying uh, in the, currently, where to the strength for future progress for our community, economic level, mm -hmm. um, where does that kind of come from or where do you see that coming from? Well, uh, you have to, I guess, instill in people who would change a belief that change is possible. Yes. And many examples have shown that change is possible. But, you know, I think of slavery. Slavery has been a part of human existence since Adam and Eve almost. It's always been a part that those who have power will seek to uh, use that power to subjugate and use people of lesser power. But throughout the years, slavery has always been used to advance the health and welfare of the power group. And they use the, uh, the intellect, and the uh, attitude, the uh, skills of the slaves to improve their condition. All through the years, there has never been an attempt to obliterate the history, to complete history, culture, and uh, language of slaves, except in this country. This was the first country and this is a, always gnawing at my innards. This is the first country that deliberately sought to obliterate the history, the culture, the language, the skills, and the self-esteem mm. of a group of people to further subjugate them. Yes, sir. Now, that is one of the things that we have to recognize. This, and it comes down to white supremacy, is deep, deep, in the soul of America, and we are still working hard to obliterate this scourge, this uh, smear on our character. We would be great people. We would be people who 
a value of freedom. But until we face the reality that there is this deep cultural scar which must be erased, we cannot and will not be able to change the situation and we will further degrade and make worse the condition for the majority of people who live in an autocracy or, a, or a, a dictatorship type of government. This country is closer to that than we'd like to think. And we need to think in terms right now of changing the political structure so that we can get sort of simple as why would an 18 year old be able to carry an A45 mass uh, massacre gun around? Yes, sir. And we can't even do that in the last 50 years. Right. This country's in trouble, and we have to realize that unless we have this change in our attitude toward our history, that we will want to change it, we will not be able to change it. Yes, well, that was, whew. especially speaking on today's topics, when you give a 16-year-old a firearm, when most children are getting cake and shoes and video games, it does kind of um, negate differences. Um, you all have led profound lives. So um, this question is basically talking about, um, uh, tell me about your earlier lives. And Doc, can we start with you? You want to start with me? Yes, sir. <laughs> well, I'm 96 years old now. Wow. Yes. And that gives me a uh, panoramic view, if you will, of what has happened in my lifetime. And I have seen, like Martin Luther, I have seen the changes which have happened. We have made profound changes, but we cannot be satisfied with what has been done because unless we continue to obliterate the causes of the degradation of our society, we will lose it all and be even more degraded, especially in the lives of those who are on the bottom, the minorities, the less educated, the less advantage. Uh, I grew up, I was born in New York City, uh, which at that time was not as deeply segregated as many parts of the South, but still had many of the uh, conditions which would lead to segregation. Uh, fortunately, at that time, I was able, because of laws in the city and the custom to get an education free of charge. And I was able to get a good education, but uh, still in all, I had to live in a partially segregated, uh, discriminatory society. I had never lived in the South before. My first experience in the South was with, uh, when I went to medical school in Nashville, Tennessee which was not part of the deep, deep South, but which still had its great element of uh, segregation and discrimination. My first real experience with the deep South was in Fort Lauderdale, when I was a uh, extern as a senior medical student with Dr. James Sistrom, who was a general practitioner in Fort Lauderdale, and to me, the quintessential model of a general practitioner working in the community under adverse circumstances. And I watched what he was doing and what he was trying to do, and it impressed me. And then 
uh, I happened to have married a young lady from Miami, from Coconut Grove, if you will. Her name was Dazelle Simpson. And uh, that further impressed me with what is possible out of the South. Yes, sir. And she, we, we were determined to go to California where there was, at that time, less discrimination uh, when we finished medical school. She was my college uh, medical school classmate. But having lived with uh, Dr. Sistrunk and having visited Miami at that time and having met her grandfather, E.W.F. Stirrup, who was a real pioneer in this area, I began to see, well, maybe there is some promise with hard work to work some changes in the society. But uh, until she, <laughs> we had, uh, when we started, when she started her practice, we built a house here. And once you set roots down, that kind of changes your mind, I think. <laughs> that probably swung me to the realization that there is promise, there is possibility, and there is room for change with hard work, even in a place which was not, you know, Miami was not the deep, deep segregated South. There were a lot of people from other areas who uh, mediated, if you will, the deep segregation attitudes. So I saw possibilities here, and we decided that we'd continue to live here and build the community. So that was my experience. Had I not externed with Dr. Sistrunk, I probably never would have come to the South. And had I not married a resident who grew up in Coconut Grove, I know darn well I wouldn't be here sitting today. Yes, sir. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Uh, I grew up in the uh, uh, 60s, you know, um, and Coconut Grove was this type of community. First, my grandmother and her sisters at 3242 Charles would sit on the porch on Sundays after church. Church was still not only their church, Christ Episcopal, but the other four traditional uh, long-term churches were the center of the community. And that's how you got to really know everybody, even more so than being in school. It's that you had so many connections in your church. Um, and uh, there was a sense of uh, raising, I'll give you the, the best example of raising a village. All right. If I were to get in trouble, I on keep saying whole village on Char whole village. All right, this is how a whole village operates. Mm. And this is in the '60s, but it no, it didn't happen in the '70s, and then going on. If I were to get in trouble, now I'm going to have a, a disclaimer that I was a good kid or a okay. smart one okay. who would go to South Miami <laughs> to get in trouble. But if I were to get in trouble, um, I could be stopped, chastised, and if it's a close friend of my mother's or my grandmother's whooped then and then the grapevine by the time I got home uh, another whooping from my mother and then the extreme intimidation of wait till your father gets home now, that's a whole other story which I don't need to give but the community was involved in my rearing but as I said I was a smart kid so I, that didn't happen to me as much my older brother and his my cousin Malcolm a lot more and me and my younger brother I used to get a bike and ride someplace else, not Coconut Grove. Uh, that is a part of who I am today. Right under the influence of my parents and my family. Yes. Um, and I was raised in the, in the Catholic Church, but Christ Episcopal was a big part of my life. And uh, 
and church was a big part of our life, and it still is now. Um, I think if young people hadn't moved from the community and still had those same uh, roots yes. with with their uh, their source of their religious nourishment, um, in fact, I, I like to use that term. Uh, we're spiritually we're malnourished, mm, and 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 that's why we don't have the strength to fight. Um, when you have an economic giant literally across the street that I'm looking at, Merrick, uh, Little Bahamas doesn't have the same economic power, but it could if it had the spiritual nourishment. How about that? Thank you. Well, as I said before, it seems that we're so separated, it does seem like we're back to integration to me, and I was telling the young lady that this morning, we don't have the family feeling for one another as we did before. We are not concerned, and as in his day, he experienced the same thing I did in my day. If something, if someone saw us doing something out of the way, and they had no telephones, no connections, no cell phones. But do you know when you got home? Our parents knew what we did wrong because someone had notified them that we did something wrong out of the ordinary. It was like a family, I, I just can't say the word bonding together that helped us grow up as young women and young men in our community, because we had the concern of everyone in the community. And everyone knew each other, like I said before, we were concerned about each other. But who cares nowadays, and that's why these young people are getting over, because no one is concerned about them, no one cares about them, they're just doing things their way. Thank you. Yes, I can echo what the other three panelists have said. We have lost that sense of community here. Uh, we were more uh, cohesive as far as your neighbors, friends, family, your churches, your organizations, fraternal groups, and we have lost that. I saw that happen after integration kicked in primarily. Uh, the other thing that distresses me most is that the young people have no respect for older people. That's less and less. Before, if the person was the town's drunk or the the town's uh, peeping Tom or whatever, you still had respect for those people if they were older than you because that's what the age thing did to you. But now these kids don't have that. And to get that reinstilled or instilled into them is, is kind of like a, a lost art, I would think, because that has to come from the family and other groups and, and, and schools and whatever. And now the kids don't get paddled in school. Not that I was ever in favor of that, but... <laughs> <laughs> I think the fear of being paddled can't help kids go on the right path. So it's a lot of things that they have working for them, but it's also working against them. So this will be our last question, and it's um, what advice do you have for the next generation, for these young people who you want to you know, take the helm and confront this change? What do you have to say to them in terms of what they need to do to support the community? Uh, um, the thing I mentioned earlier, um, 
spiritual nourishment. Mm-hmm. Spiritual mer- nourishment in my life and experience has come from a um, spiritual community. And, uh, uh, and also something that my father w- was speaking about, about this country and the racism that was formed in this country. In this country, you, racism was based on a um, complete overarching dehumanizing of people because of color. But once you start going down, now that is the actual epitome of a slippery slope. Because once you can dehumanize people because of color, you can dehumanize women and their value because of their sex. You can dehumanize, so you can be, if you're the person in power, then you have all the privileges and everybody else is a lower tier. um, There are uh, class struggles, there are caste struggles, but the one based on racism and sexism, those are ceilings that you have to find a jackhammer and and, and knock a ceiling upside down, I mean, above your head to get through. But that has been done. But the other thing that people need to be, always be reminded of, uh, I've fortunately been a student of history and um, we fought the Civil War. And for about five years, there was, at least in the South, the beginning of political equity. And then for the next 90 years, that ended. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was struggled again in the 60s during time when my f- father here was uh, locally uh, head of the NAACP and was a, one of the people who, you, you, even once the laws are, are, are put on the books, somebody has to be the first to sit at the lunch counters before and after to send their kids to uh, school right. to integrate it and the risk that that entails. Right. Um, and that takes commitment and courage and belief in your community and um, a, a social core. Uh, the, our young people have that, but they also have phones in their hands all the time. Right. You know, right. and so if they can find a way to to connect as a social community, that we're not only a social community, but we're a spiritually connected community. And I won't dehumanize anybody because that dehumanizes me you see if we have that you can change not just this community but this or this state this country you could change this world you have that then you don't have one large country invading a small country or you don't have women losing their rights that they thought they had to their the integrity of their own bodies and also you don't have a community which stays under an economic blight for generations. You have the belief that I, I'm the change agent and I'm not alone. Thank you. Is there anyone else who wants to respond to that last question? Oh, well, as far as what to tell young people, uh, I think a lot of them don't realize how important education is and that's why uh, a series such as this one with the FIU and other locals, uh, institutions of higher learning it's important that we stress upon the kids how important education is and knowledge and to pursue education doesn't necessarily mean it has to be in the academia it can also be a trade it's just that you should also just build up something that you can 
uh, prosper and, and then also couple that with your spiritual nourishment and your community spirit, you can get a whole lot accomplished within your community. Okay. Doc, would you like to add anything? So we could kind of... Anything that young people should take in to move forward for the next generation? Yes. What do you think young people should do they should take in uh, to strengthen them for the challenges in the future. The ne what can the next generation do to share itself up? Well, one thing that, uh, that they should do is to, that they must do, is to internalize the changes which have been made, to believe in the possibility of permanent change. They have to realize the importance and significance of the of the their own history of their own past generation, their parents and their grandparents, and believe that they can grow further on that line of approach. You have to instill in them the belief. You have to let them instill in themselves the belief that change is possible but that it is not possible without their individual and personal participation. So to get them involved, to get them knowledgeable of the power, for instance, of their single vote. A lot of them believe that they, you know, they can't do anything with it. The power of the vote is essential in building a foundation for political and uh, social advance of the group. So you have to, to, in your own belief, transmit to them, in our own belief, transmit to our children, this coming generation, the possibility, the probability, and the inevitability of change if their participation is strong enough. Okay, thank you all so much. I wish we had some more time, but maybe we can make some more time in the future because of course what you're saying is imperative. But wait a minute, did we forget you? Oh, we can't forget you, Ms. Brown. Oh, no, I, you didn't forget me. Okay. I, my only last comment is that we were all created by God. Yes, ma'am. And if we can think that we are all brothers and sisters created by God and have a feeling of love for each other, regardless of color, I think this world will be a better place to live. All right, any last comments that you all have before we wrap up? Any last comments? All right, well, yes. No, I was going to say, I said amen sister, so, you know, to, to Ms. Brown. I said it to her, but that's my last comment. Well, thank you all so much because this is like a really, it's really important for our young people to see how we can engage our communities together. So we thank you so much for your time and we hope that we can kind of speak more in depth about, you know, what we need to do and how we can bridge that gap between our young people and just hearing your story. So I thank you very much. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you for having me.